This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guests today are all doing great things for Long Island Sound, among other things. Firstly, I want to welcome into Digging in the Dirt, Dr. Sarah Crosby, who is a marine ecologist trained in conservation science with extensive experience in coastal and marine ecosystems. As the Maritime Aquarium at Norwalk's Director of Conservation and Policy, she is responsible for leading the aquarium's conservation initiatives and strategy with a focus on the ecosystem of Long Island Sound. And Kat Cusco, a marine science educator at Project Oceanology since 2019. At Project O, Kat works with students from multiple grade levels where she teaches marine and environmental science lessons. She also works on the Lobster Trap Recovery and Assessment Partnership called LTRAP that contributes to the understanding of the aquatic ecosystem in Long Island Sound. And finally, but not least, Bill Lucy is here. Bill is a sound keeper for Save the Sound. Bill is a fish and wildlife biologist with more than two decades of experience studying and conserving marine life. He is also an experienced commercial fisherman and environmental educator. He has been here on Digging in the Turt several times before, and I knew he'd have a lot of information about this story we're about to discuss. Welcome all. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. I was reading a story in the Connecticut Insider about the Lobster Traps project and wanted to dig a little deeper into the issue happening here in our very own backyard. According to the Insider, it seems at the bottom of Long Island Sound, there are anywhere from 800,000 to 1.2 million abandoned lobster traps sitting derelict and rotting on the ocean floor and becoming a problem for the environment. So who wants to jump here first and tell us specifically what the problem is and how do we get to, to this stage? Well, I think I'll jump in on that that estimate, and then um, others can you know, define the problem. That number was um, derived from, and the reason I bring that up is there's been a lot of questions from the the fishing fleet if that's a realistic number or not. Is that the number was derived from Cornell, their fisheries program, their cooperative extension over on Long Island in Suffolk County, and they based that on a couple of things. One was how many traps they were pulling up and what amount of time. And when they first started doing this over there about, about a dozen years or so ago, they were getting lots of traps very quickly. They also use trap tags, how many traps are issued each year. And there's a standard rate of trap loss. But I, when I used to fish lobsters over at Mount Sinai one winter back in the mid-90s, we'd always come across a line or two of uh, pots that had been lost. But the thought is not all those trap tags got fished. So that, that's why there's a range on that number. Um, what we like to say with our group right now, we know there's at least tens of thousands that are down there. We're not sure of the exact number. Still quite a bit. There's a lot, yep. <laughs> and so, um, Sarah or Kat, what, what is the specific problem that this causes? So these traps present a variety of problems for the health of Long Island Sound. So one of the biggest concerns that we have about these traps remaining on the bottom of the sound is that they continue to catch animals. So when the traps are lost, they attract fish and crabs and other animals uh, who enter the traps. 
And then when those animals die, they actually attract additional animals into the into the traps. And so that starts a process that's called self-mating. And so essentially, even though no one's adding date to the traps, the traps continue to attract and catch animals that then die and perpetuate that process. And so even though these traps aren't being actively fished, they still continue to harm a lot of animals that are encountering them incidentally. And beyond that, there's concerns about the chemicals that are leaching from the plastic components of these traps as they remain in the sound uh, and their disruption to what would otherwise be soft sediment uh, habitat on the bottom of the sound. What are some of the more specific problems that it, that it has? I mean, it, it, when you say it's in the sediment, that means that there's uh, it's disrupting the the place where some of these animals would live. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. So it's essentially creating a hard substrate uh, where otherwise a hard substrate would not be. And so the other thing that happens with these traps is that in parts of the sound that are soft sediment, so you know mud and sand, um, when the traps are moved around by storms, for example, they scrape along the bottom and disturb a lot of the animals that would be living in, in that mud. And so because a lot of those animal communities are made up of you know, things like worms and really soft body creatures, having these traps you know, sitting either in the way or dragging around uh, really does a lot of damage to those, um, those habitats. So how did the aquarium get involved in removing some of these ghost traps, that's what they're called? Sure. So again, this this work is very much a partnership with Save the Sound, Project of Oceanology, and the Cornell Cooperative Extension of Suffolk County. So the aquarium is glad to be part of this cooperative partnership. Um, and this really started back three years ago. Bill, do you want to correct me on that? But about three years ago. Well, it was actually 2018 is when we passed the law that enabled us to do it. So in 2018, actually, Bill, I'll, let, I'll let Bill talk about the passing of the law, but essentially the aquarium came together with a variety of partners to be able to do this work in Connecticut waters for the first time. Cornell Cooperative Extension has been collecting traps for over a decade in New York waters, but the passing of the legislation in 2018 enabled this work to be done to collect these traps uh, legally in Connecticut waters for the first time. And Bill, so how was how this recognized that this was a problem? Is it because the traps weren't being fished out? And, and how does it come to happen that so many traps could be left there? Isn't there, a, like you said, there's probably licensing, I would imagine, and identification tags. How does how do they get separated from their true owners and not get, say, turned in uh, at the end of their use? Right. Well, <clears throat> the law was started by uh, Senator Craig Miner, who um, he's an avid angler. Uh, he goes out in Long Island Sound sometimes. <clears throat> and he uh, uh, he realized there was a lot of junk on the bottom of Long Island Sound. So he put forth a bill through the Environment Committee up in Hartford. And when we found out about that, there was a crab uh, researcher, the predecessor to uh, Sarah's uh, position at the aquarium, who uh, had some data about removing abandoned traps or lost traps in Chesapeake Bay and how by doing that they increased uh, a number of crabs available to the fishery by something like five million dollars a year or something and really so that much we 
Oh yeah, it was really significant down there because, the, like Sarah said, once something dies in it, you everything comes to it. So if you like, I pulled up a trap one time and I did blue crab in it. There was a couple of American eels in it and um, five really nice whelk, you know, and it hadn't been pulled up to the surface in ten years, and that was a nice fresh cast. But so anyway, yeah, so it's a big impact on the commercial fishery. Uh, especially where it's still active, like with the blue crab. So in 2018, we changed that bill a little bit. And we worked with a guy, Rob LaFrance, who's now with Audubon, but he was at Connecticut Deep back then. And uh, this guy, Dave Hudson, and we sort of, we changed the bill a little bit and got it. So where we now, Sarah and, and Kate and myself, we can go out and pull those traps up. Because before you could only touch a trap if you were law enforcement or you were the actual owner of the trap. So if we were to go out back then and try and clean these up, we would get a ticket. And that comes from the days, for those who remember the wild days of the lobster rodeos, when they were worth a lot of money, people made a lot of, lot of money. And so everybody was fishing. They were fishing large numbers of traps. I got involved with that out of Long Island back in 1994 to 95, that winter. And then it just died off in 1999 water quality issues there's uh, pesticide runoff issues the sound just getting hot they say a number of uh, 18 degrees celsius days you get too many of those in the row the lobsters get really weak and sick so the whole fishery just fell apart now if you're a fisherman you probably don't have a lot of storage on the seaside in connecticut or long island because that's prime real estate so a lot of folks left the pots out there hoping that the fishery would come back and um, they would just go grab them and, and, and reuse them. Well, it never did come back and people moved away. People have died. I think the oldest pot that I pulled up, I don't know about um, Project O or the aquarium was 1986. I was on a trip. We pulled a pop. The last time it had a tag was 1986. So um, they're just lost. They're abandoned. The owners aren't around. There's not that many fishermen left. So um, that's how they all got down there, the collapse of the fishery. So, Kat, let's bring you in here. What 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 do you do with the L-Trap project? So I uh, kind of go out on the boats with um, our partners, our uh, local fishermen, since they know this water's best. Uh, they know the best spots to kind of put our gear in the waters and see if we can collect any ghost spots. So I'm in the team um, in charge of kind of helping, being the hands-on team, pulling the lobster traps on board, recording data. So it's like a lot of work that we do when it comes to that project specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what what is it that uh, you do to find them? Is this kind of haphazard or luck or oh. do you know kind of where they are? So we actually rely on our local fishermen uh, since they've been here for a long time. They know the best spots. So they take us there and we're still like going to the same spots every single time because we're collecting a lot of pots and there's a lot of them that are buried. So they know the spots. So we kind of rely on them to get to the areas. And for the most part here in the eastern part of Long Island Sound, we always find pots. There's no like a day that we don't find any. We always come back with at least 20 pots. So what's the way you do it? Is it you got like a grappling hook you throw and drag it or you, yes. you that's how you do it? Yeah, we have a sled, which is really, really heavy to make sure that the equipment stays at the bottom. And then we have uh, grapples connected to it and we throw them in the water and then we kind of 
you know, boat around or drag them around for a couple minutes. And then once we feel like we have something on it, we pull it up. And uh, if we have a lobster pot, um, we kind of take it on board and then we start to analyze the pot, see if it has like a tag, record the information, if we know the owner, and also record like the species that we find in the ghost pot. And sometimes we also keep specimens because sometimes you find like rare things. Uh, sometimes you might find like crabs, maybe a lobster or like flipper cell. So we kind of record all of that data and then we send it to the aquarium. So when you're pulling these up, are you getting one at a time or does a string of them come out? Is that how it uh, works? There's like a string of them. Like it can be your first toe and then you have like five pots in one grappler and then the other one may have like one or two. So mm -hmm. in our side here, we collect a lot of pots. There's a lot. <laughs> so you, when you go out there, are you, uh, how many are you pulling out about uh, per day when you go out? And how many days a week do you go out? We try to go out twice a month, I believe. And we typically come back with about 20 pots up to 29. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, that's how far we got. And so far, how many of you have taken out? This, this sounds like it's going to take a while to get them out of the sound. Oh, yeah. So overall, I think over, uh, I want to say like over a thousand traps have been collected along like all of us, all our partners. I don't know a specific number off the top of my head for just Project Out. Mm -hmm. And in the spe species, you're finding basic lobsters, eels and, and crabs and things like that. Some some fish, though. Yeah, we find some fish, some uh, sea bass sometimes, some tautogs as well. Uh, we measure them uh, and then we release them, obviously. So, Bill or maybe Sarah, is there any new rules for people who are laying down new new lobster pots, or are they are they not doing that anymore? Is that is that the case? Is is it changed so much that the lobster industry has gone down so much that new ones aren't going out? So you're just getting old stuff that's coming up. Yeah, there's very few active lobster fishermen in the sound now. Um, it, it's really a handful of folks at this point, I would say, who are actively fishing for lobster just because there are so few lobster left. Um, a lot of the folks who had been involved in that industry are either working in other fisheries or, like Bill said, a lot of the folks we reach out to when we find their traps you know, we're, you know, we're finding out that those people are deceased because, it, you know, these traps have been out there for so long. Um, so we're often working with, you know, generations of family members trying to get in touch with, with the person whose traps they are or, or to reach out to sort of their, their you know, next of kin or sometimes um, there's a son who's now in the industry. So, you know, I, I think that one thing that is important about this work is that, like you said, because there's so few people deploying new lobster traps. This really is sort of a legacy pollution type. So we're cleaning up traps that, you know, were lost or abandoned many, many years ago, but there isn't major source of new traps going in and continuing to be lost. So even though there are many thousands of them to clean up, we are making progress. You know, it's not uh, a case where there's, you know, more going in each year than we could possibly take out. So at, at the very least, we are able to make progress because there is a limited amount of new traps being lost. And one thing I did just want to add to what Bill said is that I think there is sometimes a perception that these traps were dumped in the sound. Um, and I, I think that what we have been hearing from the industry and, and in working with our industry partners is it's really, that's 
rarely, if ever, the case. Um, so some of them are lost, you know, accidentally during fishing activities and others, like Bill said, folks had every intention of going back for um, when the when the industry rebounded and and that day has not has not yet come. And so it's really a case of you know, folks aging out of the industry or, or passing away before they have that chance to go back and restart that work. So this is not a, a, a case of these lobstermen or lobster women, for that matter, uh, just abandoning them because it's cheaper to do, just abandon them and, and or they're lazy about taking them back out and they just move on. Is, that's not the case you're saying? No, that has not Ooh. been my experience with any of the folks we've been working with or anybody we've been talking to. Not at all. On the contrary, actually, one thing that, that Kat mentioned, but I think is, is worth emphasizing is that all of the work that we're doing to recover these traps is being done on the boats of lobster fishermen working in close partnership with, with those, with those folks. And Very so, cool. Yeah, fishermen are some of the best, you know, stewards of the environment around, right? Like the especially for anyone who's making their living working in the sound, they want the sound to be thriving and to be full of wildlife. And we have found great partners in the fishing industry who are working alongside us to try to clean up this problem, even though many of the folks we're working with, you know, played no part in, in creating the problem. And so I think we have a, a really wonderful partnership with the industry and we're, you know, hoping to do what we can to work together to get these traps out of the water. And Bill, you say that does definitely have an effect on the environment in the, in the bottom of the, the ecosystem of the, the sound. Well, you know, one of the, I, I tend to, since I, I held commercial fishing permits for 17 years while I was also a biologist up in Alaska, you know, I, I looked through both lenses of the ecology and also from the point of view of a harvester you know, what we find, some of the big species we found, especially early on in this project, when Long Island, um, the folks over at Cornell were collecting data, the top two species over there were lobsters and tatog. And those are both very valuable commercial species. And that's what we would find when we were running traps. And we were, you know, I think I was told maybe two, three years ago, there was about a dozen lobstermen on the Connecticut side that were catching more than a thousand pounds, you know, to Sarah's point. When I was fishing out of Mount Sinai, we were doing 800 pounds a day, one boat, one day, not the season. So, I mean, it was, it was worth a lot. And when we pulled up those abandoned pots, each, each trap would have four or five to tog in them, you know, blackfish. And these are strings of seven pots um, over there were pretty typical, seven and nine. So, you know, removing the loss of those animals from a commercial aspect is an economic value. And then the ecological value is all the other creatures that end up in these things and those, those species as well. So I think it, it's twofold. To Sarah's point, the, the, no one wants to lose a pot. I fished striped uh, uh, prawns or spot prawns up in Alaska, and I built all my own shrimp pots out of the same material that these lobster pots are made out of. And it's expensive. You don't want to lose an expensive piece of equipment. None of these things, I don't think, were, were dumped. So, you know, people just, like we explained before, they, they moved on or, you know, they got out of the business because you couldn't make a living at it anymore. You're listening to Digging in the Dirt, and my guests are Dr. Sarah Crosby of the Norwalk Maritime Aquarium, Kat Cusco of Project Oceanology, and Bill Lucy, a soundkeeper with Save the Sound. So you're basically, I'm getting is that 
the lobster population is way down and there's no basic lobster industry anymore in the sound. Is that due to circumstances like climate change and global warming and all this? I guess what I'm asking is what what's the health of the sound right now? And I have some pretty good experts here to help me out with that. So yeah. what what's going on with the Long Island Sound that we don't have lobsters anymore and we're having issues? Who wants to take that one on? Go yeah, ahead, go hours, ahead, Sarah. How many hours do we have, Kevin? <laughs> well, <laughs> ten, ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you my I'll give you my my thirty seconds. So the the lobster population, like Bill said, has declined for a variety of reasons. You know, related to not only climate change, but also in the case of of lobsters, there were pesticide related issues and uh, water quality related issues. So climate change, from my perspective, presents the single greatest threat to the ecology of Long Island Sound as we know it. As we have fewer opportunities for lobsters to recover as things are getting warmer, we're seeing a lot of Chesapeake Bay species coming northward. So things like blue crabs and other sort of traditionally thought of more Southern animals are making their way up here. And so while the original collapse of the lobster population had, you know, I think multiple factors, I think that climate change is a big reason why we aren't seeing a recovery that we otherwise might have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to piggyback on the climate change and the species change. I mean, when, when I was a kid, you didn't see the number of black sea bass that are out there. And they're an incredible biomass down there. And Baby lobsters aren't that big, you know, it's like a little crayfish. So, and then also the the stripers. When I was uh, when I was younger, there was a ban on striper fishing in the eighties. It got so bad, and they loved to eat larger larger lobsters. So a lot of the lobster predators came back. One through management, and one through climate change, as the black sea bass range has been moving north. So it's not just it gets too hot for the lobsters and they get stressed and they get what's called this uh, shell disease, which creates all the weak points in the shell, um, which disease can come in and it's easy, they, they die from that sometimes. Sure. So climate change is uh, definitely for multiple reasons, the biggest threat to them. Right. And that black sea bass is good eating. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're, ty- they're like a type of grouper. Yeah. So, Kat, what are you seeing practically? And you're out there on the on the water and get wrapping these pots. What are you seeing about the the health of the sound? Um, I do think has it has changed uh, from what it was uh, years and years ago. I do think climate change is a factor influencing the changes in ecosystem and species distribution. Like Bill and Sarah said, uh, there's a lot of factors that are going to influence like the amount of lobsters that we see nowadays, which is less and less. And yes, it's due to climate change, uh, of course. And I think there is a decrease uh, because of it, but also um, a couple of human impacts. I think those are other factors that may have something to do with the changes that we're seeing. But we are trying to do our best. You know, we're trying to, through this work, kind of somehow help clean up our uh, ecosystem and try to restore whatever we can. But yeah, I think climate change is a a big factor influencing the lobsters. Probably pollution and nitrogen too is another couple of factors, I'm sure. 
Um, yeah. And Kat, you're a teacher. You you teach kids about all this stuff. Wait, tell us just briefly what what you're doing with kids and what do you emphasize with them? So we teach different grade levels and we try to teach them about conservation of Long Island Sound. A lot of kids that we work with, they don't even know that Long Island Sound is right here and that we are directly impacted by it. So our goal is to teach different like science lessons so they can understand how the marine environment works, but also like ecological impacts that humans can cause. So we work a lot with them and we try to encourage them to be more mindful of their carbon footprint and also about solutions that they uh, can do at their local communities or schools. Uh, even though they might be like in elementary school or middle school, they still have the power to make some changes. Uh, so that's our goal, to teach them about marine science, but also encourage them to be the change, I will say. Because sometimes they might feel because, oh, maybe I'm just a kid. I have no power. I'm not an adult. I can't do anything. But we try to teach them that they can come up uh, with solutions and there are other resources out there as well. Yeah, it's their planet in the future, right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Crosby, <laughs> tell us a little bit about other projects or events or issues that the uh, Norwalk Aquarium is interested in. Oh, sure. So uh, the conservation team here at the Aquarium right now, in addition to the work on lobster traps, we're focusing on a lot on salt marsh responses to climate change, thinking about how are, in my opinion, most important coastal habitat uh, type is going to respond to rising sea levels and how we can better protect those habitats for the future. Um, we're also doing a lot of work on horseshoe crabs right now and working on uh, water quality um, in partnership also with Save the Sound and other organizations. So our conservation portfolio is focused on the species and habitats of the sound broadly and focus uh, our research in the field based on where we think we can have the most impact. And so a lot of that work has been thinking about the sounds benthic habitats like this project, um, but also thinking about our coastal habitats and the species that they support. Awesome. Sounds great. Okay, Bill, you're up. Uh, what, tell my listeners what Save the Sounds up to right now. What's what's a priority for you guys? Um, we've got a lot of them. So we have an ecological restoration team. We're working on some dam removals. We just removed one in Norwalk. Um, we have a big water quality monitoring program. Uh, we work a lot on legislation related to water and fisheries in New York. And Connecticut, one of the big things that we do is we advocate for strong budgets in both those states for wastewater treatment plant upgrades. So we want the water that's coming into Long Island Sound to be clean. So we fix up the watersheds, fix up our, our sewage plants, reduces the nitrogen, reduces the eutrophication of the sound. Um, and then one fun one that's related to this talk is we're, we're working on a, an eelgrass restoration technique where we glue eelgrass seeds to clams and then we have a machine that disperses those clams and we've been working up in connecticut college over in westbrook down in clinton we might be working in oyster bay soon or out in the peconic we've tried it in a number of areas and so hopefully that method proves out and we can start bringing back some of the eelgrass because like salt marsh Eelgrass is really disappearing in the sound, and it's a it's another very important habitat. Yeah, I've heard about that before. It sounds like a really great project. 
So anybody can jump in here. What, what what can my listeners do to participate in keeping this special body of water healthy? Well, I'll go first. I think what we need to realize now is that non-point water pollution is the biggest problem. So putting lawn fertilizers on when you really don't need lawn fertilizers. I know I've talked about that on the show before. Um, trying to catch all the runoff off your property in rain gardens or bioswales. All the sewage treatment plants have... You know, they have permits and we can make them comply and they, they're doing a really good job of cleaning up. Connecticut's done a really good job, especially of um, getting their, their plants compliant with the Clean Water Act. But the problem is us now. It's a runoff from the roads. It's a runoff from our houses. That's got all the, the chemicals and fertilizers and other nasties in it. So think about your own personal impact in your own home and how you can mitigate that. Yeah, we get one person at a time and we get it. Then it all becomes, uh, you know, a tribe of people. And then we got a whole community and it actually makes a difference. Dr. Crosby, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would echo everything that Bill said. I think that there's a lot that we can do as individuals to reduce our impact on water quality, like, like Bill said, but also, you know, to reduce our individual carbon footprints and to use our collective voices to advocate for policies that are going to protect the sound from climate change and to reduce the rate of sea level rise and the rate of warming to the extent that we can. So, uh, you know, I think voting for politicians who support uh, the environment is the best thing that any of us can do. And then individually in our own lives, doing what we can to minimize our impact on the environment especially our carbon footprints yeah i'll second that i'm an environmental voter so <laughs> if you're for the planet i'm for you <laughs> and kat what about you okay you want you get the, it seems like you get the last word <laughs> i know my goodness <laughs> i think i agree with what bill and sarah said uh definitely like support what you said i also think that you know just involving your community community members either like they can be like you know, like five-year-old kids all the way to adults, like have them work together, uh, maybe create like action projects, not only at the schools, but like in your community as well, or like see if you can volunteer at different nonprofits who are, um, you know, working for a better environment. Um, I would think those are very good um, actions that we can take to take care of Long Island Sound, our environment. Uh, beach cleanups are pretty common as well, and they're very impactful as well. And since we are in Long Island, Long Island Sound, there's a lot of coastline. And I think, you know, going on a weekend walk or something, you can pick up some trash and things like that, right? It might seem like it's not a, a huge deal, but it it's going to have an impact. And so I think those are some things that we can do. I know we, uh, Project Oceanology, we work with a couple of schools and we're actually uh, doing an action project to collect uh, single-use plastic, which is everywhere. And we're actually having our kindergarten classes collect those items. So, you know, just actions like that can make a huge difference in the future and the well-being of our ecosystems. And I guess we could go to NorwalkMaritimeAquarium.org, right, to find out more information. And same with SaveTheSound.org. MaritimeAquarium.org. The Norwalk is uh, not in the... Oh, it's not Zora. in there. Okay. <laughs> and then Kat, uh, you, so what Project O's website? Project O website is Oceanology.org. My guests today have been Dr. Sarah Crosby, Director of the Norwalk Maritime Aquarium, and Kat Cusco of Project Oceanology and Bill Lucy, a soundkeeper with Save the Sound. Thanks you all for coming and thank you for all the valuable work you do. 
You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. Thank you.